Hello, and welcome back to Whole and Complete Podcast. I'm Dr. Shantae, and this is the podcast all about faith and wellness, loving God, living well, with a central focus on our mental well-being. And listeners, as you know, I've joked about this on the podcast in the past, but every single therapist, every single voice that I have brought onto the podcast through oh, 18 episodes has been female. It's either been me and, a, and another therapist. And so we kind of broke that last week with Reverend Jasper Paul Taylor uh, speaking about Christian activism. And so drum roll, please. I have finally, <laughs> I have sourced a brother to come to the show. And specifically, uh, as a great capstone and in this series that we have on speaking from hurt. And so we've talked about lamentations and we've talked about what we as a people need to be doing with respect to Christian activism. But as always, I want to close the series out with a voice from our mental health community. And I could think of none better than Dr. Richard Orbe Austin of Dynamic Transitions. And he not only is a, is a licensed therapist, but he has a significant background with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've been looking at his work on race-related trauma and given everything that's happening in the country, I could not think of a better person to bring on the show. So welcome, Dr. Richard. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly. It's my pleasure to be on the show. And I do know that I am an endangered species to some extent <laughs> when we talk about Black male psychologists or mental health practitioners in general. Yes, indeed. But we are, listen, we welcome you, we embrace you, we are happy to have you here in our tribe today. And specifically, so what we've been talking about on the show is basically everything that's happening in the world right now with respect to racism and systemic systems of oppression and injustice. And specifically, I don't think that, I think looking at your work was probably the first time that I had heard or seen the term race-related trauma. I've heard of things, you know, like maybe post-traumatic slave disorder or, and, and things like that. But can you tell us kind of like break down what race-related trauma is, how to recognize it, and what are some of the things historically that kind of fuel that perspective? Sure. So when I talk about race-related trauma, I'm talking about the cumulative effects of racism on one's physical and mental well-being. And so I'll say it again, race-related trauma is the cumulative impact of racism on one's physical and mental well-being. And we specifically phrase it because of the fact that racism has a very traumatic effect on your everyday functioning, even though we may not recognize it. And so it's important to know that whether it's explicit racism, someone calling you you know, a, the N-word, or if it's just small, what we call microaggressions on a day-to-day, -day, those particular experiences have weight and eventually build up and can cause you to feel traumatized by bearing that burden every day, every week, every month, every year. So it is actually very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. So some of the typical signs and symptoms of it are having flashbacks, having nightmares. If it was a particular, for instance, racist incident, either an encounter with the police or a negative encounter with a civilian in any particular form, it's being suspicious 
uh, in ways that make it difficult for you to feel calm and relaxed in different settings or, or environments. It's having situations where you may feel increasingly anxious or depressed, feeling overly fatigued, not feeling that you want to deal with others, so withdrawing uh, to some extent, and also not feeling that you really are able to function in the ways that you typically are able to function as you know yourself to be. So if you are someone who's usually a happy person, but now you feel hypervigilant and, and not as joyous, then that may be a concern. And, and there's typically a trigger, there's some level of an incident, there's some level of a particular experience that causes that level of trauma. And that is one of the things that's important to recognize. It can also manifest in terms of somatic complaints. So all of a sudden you have uh, headaches or stomach aches that cannot be attributed to any actual medical concern. So thinking about some of these signs and symptoms as they relate to some negative racialized experiences leads us to understanding how racial trauma manifests in your life. Wow, that's, that's a lot. And as you are talking, I'm kind of like writing these furious notes. What's specifically, uh, listeners, one of the things that Dr. Richard said was this, it's, it's cumulative. This isn't just a one-time thing, something that just kind of pops up and then kind of goes away and leaves a lasting impact. This is something that over years, you know, whether it's direct and explicit or whether it's, like you said, those tiny things that are happening in the workplace, after a while, it begins to take a psychic toll. And something that you said that really kind of jumped out was this fatigue factor. And that's the part that I want to get into right now. So if you take a, a glance around social media, you're seeing lots of Black people say, I'm exhausted. Being Black in America is exhausting. I'm exhausted. Like I'm, you know, and in light of the events, so you talked about a trigger, you're hearing a lot of people say that they are just tired. And can you, can you speak to that, that, that feeling of, of just being worn down? Sure. So when we talk about racial trauma, one of the things that I also want to say is that there are two types that we talk about. So there's a direct trauma of actually experiencing the racist incident, but then there's a secondary or vicarious trauma, which is either seeing or hearing about these incidents of racialized violence. In the era of social media, we get much more exposure to it as Black people seeing these news reports seeing the photos shared on social media, talking about it constantly on social media. So that vicarious trauma may far and away actually outpace the level of direct trauma that we experience relative to racialized violence. So we may not necessarily have had a recent encounter personally with a police officer that's in a racialized way. We may not have had a racist incident directly but all the vicarious trauma that we're holding and experiencing leads to these feelings of exhaustion and fatigue of, it's just a lot, it's too much. And in fact, when we talked about the differences between the experience of African-Americans in this country versus whites, one study that I referenced is 2018 study 
looked at that reality. And what it found is that 50% of African-American survey respondents found that they experienced or observed or heard about an instance of an unarmed black man being killed by the police in the previous three months. And that that experience alone resulted in what we call two additional poor mental health days for them. Whereas when they compared it to white people, there were no discernible effects in terms of mental health outcomes in hearing some of these particular situations or instances of police killing unarmed black men. It's really interesting that you bring that up specifically because I remember in college, I was in a sociology class and you know I'm 19 years old and didn't know any better or probably didn't care to know better. And I remember I specifically raised my hand in class and I said, excuse me, can I ask all the white students in this class a question? And my teacher, she was great. She was like, hmm, okay, let's see where this goes. I said, question, when you hear things in the news like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is, you know, going around killing all these people with letters, or you hear about Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombings, do you as white people feel like, man, they're destroying our race. They're making us look bad. And they all looked at me like, no. <laughs> and I said, see, that's the difference between me and you. I said, because as a black woman, if I'm sitting in my dorm room and I'm watching the news and I hear a uh, three children have been abandoned, you know, in a building with crack needles. I'm sitting on my bed like, please don't be black. Please don't be black. Please don't be black. And Keisha Thompson, and I'm like, God dog it, you know, Keisha, you messing it up for the rest of us. And so it's, it's that notion of vicarious trauma, but, but just this connection, not that blackness is a monolith and, and there's all different kinds of black people and we experience blackness differently, but there is something to be said about how we're represented and how when something negative happens in the African-American community, we feel it in some way, like in some way we feel that it reflects on us, if that makes sense. It, it totally makes sense. And I actually have to commend you for having that level of insight to ask and that question and that level of courage to ask that question when you're a college student. And I don't know if I was actually there yet. Well, but, you you're know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. There's a, there's a collective responsibility almost that we have and we've all experienced it. I experienced it when you hear a news report of someone being arrested for murder or for some level of a crime. And, and you keep thinking, please don't be black. Please don't be black. And when they are black, you're like, oh, here we go again. And we somehow or another recognize, though, that it isn't just in our heads. We are going to be held responsible for it, that we do know that if that suspect is now black, then we will be perceived as even more of a particular threat or danger, whereas white people know that, yeah, Timothy McVeigh is responsible for himself. That does not reflect my own experience, and I'm not going to be held by society for his crime, whereas we don't have that same level of latitude. So ultimately, we do feel responsible because we know it will have impact on how we are perceived by those around us who especially may already hold us in some level of suspicion. Thank you for saying that. 
the bottom line is, is that for African-Americans, Black people, marginalized groups, there are different, we experience social consequences in a way that white people do not experience those same consequences. When it's African-Americans or even Indian Pakistani, there's a profile for what a terrorist looks like. And even though there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of instances of domestic terrorism on American soil by born and bred white citizens, that is not the profile. The profile looks more Indian, Arab, or from the Middle East. And so the social consequences shake out differently. But I do want to go back to something that you said with respect to vicarious trauma, and it's the seeing the photos on social media. And so right now, we're kind of caught in this this space between outrage. So look at this thing that just happened. And activism like not only look at this thing that happened but here's this thing that we need to do about it and we're kind of stuck between wanting and needing to stay informed with respect to what's going on but also kind of like being caught in this loop of re-traumatizing ourselves because as you said it just begins to weigh you down so what advice or thoughts do you have about how we can kind of strike some sort of balance with respect to the constant bombardment of images and videos that are floating around, you know, mainstream media and social media? I would say to really think about how you can limit exposure to it. So we do need to be informed. We do need to be able to recognize what is happening at any given time, but it's the extent and the repetition of that exposure that's a concern. So seeing that image of George Floyd being killed one time is traumatizing enough and powerful enough for us to understand that change needs to happen. But it's the constantly then being exposed to that same image on the news program, on social media, on particular exchanges with friends, being able to recognize that that has a negative effect on your emotional and mental well-being. So understanding that we all have particular limits and being very clear to limit exposure because over time you will feel traumatized and and it will have impact whether you are seeing it through nightmares, sleep disturbances, just uh, this feeling of overwhelm of not really wanting to deal with people. It will, it could creep up on you or it could come suddenly, but it's in this day and age of being able to have access to information 24-7 in a variety of different ways it's being very careful with how you invest your time and energy into what you consume and how often you consume it. You know, as you're saying that, that actually raises a really good point because recently Vanessa Bryant, Kobe Bryant's uh, widow, she recently spoke out and said that she has blocked all of the fan pages of Kobe and Gigi from her Instagram. And she said, it's not that I don't, appreciate the love. She said, I do appreciate the love and and we love you guys too. But the way that the algorithm and Instagram is set up, every time she went to her explore page, it just was so hard to just constantly see images of her husband and her child, her husband and her child and all these memories while she's trying to create this new normal for herself. And so she had to block all of those accounts so that it would change the algorithm and she could kind of start to populate with things that were a little bit more normal and less triggering. And I think that based on what you're saying, some of us might have to do that same thing, you know, either 
block some accounts or mute some accounts or do some finagling to kind of change the algorithms so that we are not exposed as much to these images because even if you go, you know, a couple of days off of social media, when you hop right back on it, they're still there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And recognizing that social media gives us access to information, but it also can have a negative influence on our well-being. So being able to mute, block, and understanding that you do want to be informed, but there's an extent to it. And being able to safeguard your well-being, I think, is a critical aspect, especially during these times because you can be bombarded with these images that can be traumatizing and you may not even recognize it because we're just so used to consuming so much information, so much media that it just feels normalized to us until we start to see the negative impact of it on the other side of it. You know, what's scary in that statement is normalizing trauma. Like that's, that's a sad state of affairs where trauma becomes the norm and that's that's one of the reasons why i invited you onto the show to to really kind of combat that and say you know it doesn't have to be our norm that that we can shift gears that there are things that we can do to kind of protect and insulate ourselves from the things that are are going on Uh, but i do want to shift gears for a second because this is something else that i've seen kind of percolating in in the marketplace with specifically with regard to you know brianna taylor so initially it was kind of like the hits just kept coming. So first it was Ahmaud Aubrey, and people were dealing with that. And then fresh on the heels of Ahmaud Aubrey was the Central Park incident with Amy Cooper and weaponizing blackness against this man who was doing absolutely nothing to her. And then it was George Floyd. And in the midst of that, come to find out that Breonna Taylor had had been murdered and a lot of people are are expressing frustration that women seem to be getting lost in the shuffle here with respect to what's happening to to black people and and with respect to brutality another thing that's popping up with respect to black women is these notions that black women have been this superwoman savior they've held it down for other people they've been the backbone of of the black community but it's not reciprocated, that there are these pillars of strength and these saviors of the world, but it's not reciprocated. And many women are expressing extreme exhaustion with regard to that. So how might you speak to Black women about how they might advocate for themselves or find treatment for themselves in the midst of everything that's going on? That is a great question. And it's a question that needs to be told and asked time and time again, because there is this dynamic that exists in our society where Black women experience both racism and sexism, both unfortunately within the community and then clearly outside of the community. So part of it is recognizing that you can have a different role than being the savior and being the helper, that ultimately it can be other things that you can do to have a role that isn't just solely about helping. That yes, it's good to be strong. Yes, it's good to be able to show that you can manage, but also you can take up a different role of asking for help. You can take up a different role of saying, I'm struggling, I'm having difficulty. That far too often in our community, 
yes, we recognize that Black women are the pillar, but because of that, sometimes they're locked into that role where they're not able to ask for help or they don't feel that they can even have a place to turn to be able to get that level of assistance. And so that's something that I would say to Black women to be able to feel like you can have multiple roles. You can be both a helper and someone who's asking for help. You can be someone who is strong, but also struggling with certain aspects of the current moment. And it doesn't make you weak or less Black or less of a Black woman. You don't have to turn in your card and your badge like, "Mm mm-mm, sis, see, you blew it. That's not what we do. Um, Because I, I believe that a lot of us have kind of gotten locked into that, that it is perfectly normal and okay for us to be of assistance, but it is a sacrilege for us to need assistance. We enlarge, so in, in part, that was a role kind of thrust upon us through, you know, a number of dynamics of African enslavement in this country, but also reinforced in our own communities that it's okay for us to help, but it's not okay for us to need help or ask for help lest we be seen as less than. And I think that because I have such a healthy respect to for therapy and therapists, one of the things that we talk about on the show all the time is the inner work. And so while racism and racial oppression is an issue outside of, you know, with meaning with respect to black and white and other cultural dynamics, but there's also some inner work that needs to be done within the black community to kind of combat some of those really toxic caricatures of what black women are supposed to be. Definitely. And, and I talk about often how there can just be, unfortunately, a lack of empathy for Black women and Black women's struggles specifically to dealing with both racism and sexism. Uh, it's easier to construct a particular narrative around a Black man who is killed by the police. I think it's a different narrative when we talk about a Breonna Taylor Uh, and being able to know and recognize that there should be that same level of outrage. Yes, we've seen so many unarmed Black men assassinated by the police, and and all of them are awful, and we should be outraged by that. All of them should also be outraged and have that level of empathy for Black women who are killed by the police or killed in, in horrible ways as well. So being able to develop that level of empathy, I think, is important as we think about how to engage differently in taking care of our black women. So let's, let's shift gears. Let's, let's look towards a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, as it were. So as we're dealing with all of this, as we're trying to be engaged and yet limit, you know, the, the amount of trauma that, that we're experiencing on mainstream media, social media, and just in general in being Black uh, in the workplace and, and other places, what is the way forward? What is, what is the, the path forward with respect to therapy? What are things that, that Black people can be doing right now to take care of themselves mentally so that they can have the energy to advocate for things like wages and voting and and equality within schools and things like that because if you're not, if you're so mentally worn down you just don't even have the energy for that so what are the things that people can be doing right now to try to bolster themselves and rally mentally uh, as we're experiencing all of these things the first thing i would say is to have a laser focus and commitment to self-care 
So when we talk about this notion of self-care, people hear it and automatically assume it's just this selfish notion of eating bonbons and not taking care of anybody else and just laying on a couch only caring about you know, your precious needs. And what I really talk about when we talk about self-care, in order to be able to be the best advocate, the best activist, the best parent, the best partner, the best sibling, you want to make sure you're taking care of yourself first. And when I talk about self-care, it's inclusive of all the different strategies that will allow you to feel less traumatized, to feel more calm and relaxed, to feel more hopeful uh, and optimistic. So that can range from everything from therapy, as we talked about, being able to see that it is not just a white person's path, that you can have culturally competent practitioners, black practitioners who you will feel safe in talking about some of those challenges. It's being able to connect with the community and gain support, ask for assistance. It's being able to exercise. It's being able to meditate, thinking about how to remain engaged spiritually, um, connecting with some of your religious resources if you've not necessarily been doing so. So carving out time, because one of the things that's happened in this moment is that people feel overwhelmed by work, overwhelmed by family responsibilities, and find it very difficult to commit to taking care of themselves, sleeping better, doing these things that will allow them to recharge, refill their tank, to feel ready to, to wage a fight for social justice, to wage a fight for a better life for all Black people. So it's first and foremost being able to take care of yourself, commit to that self-care, and, and then it's being able to activate your agency, thinking about the things that are in your control that you can make impact around. So it's, you know, for many people, it was going out and protesting. For others, it's reaching out to elected officials. For others, it's running for office. For others, it's donating to causes. So figuring out and thinking about the things that you can control and you can influence and activating your agency in those spaces to feel like you can make a difference because there's so much work that can that needs to be done that we can feel overwhelmed by it. But if we look at it on a micro level of saying, what is one thing that I can do to move the work and to contribute, that then allows you to feel like you can have some level of positive impact. I appreciate you saying that specifically with respect to self-care. I recently read something that, you know, joy in and of itself, Black joy is a form of resistance. And as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm recognizing how important it is to, for people to see Black people, not just surviving, you know, a la good time, scratching and surviving. <laughs> so not just getting by and scraping by, but actually experiencing the full range of human experience with respect to yoga and meditation, with respect to travel with respect to, you know, dining, well, not dining out with friends because, you know, COVID is still amongst us, but, you know, but populating those, those feeds, as it were, not that I'm advocating for social media um, specifically, but kind of like populating our feeds and our lives with things that are positive so that we don't get locked into this thinking that to be Black in America is this kind of shackled death sentence, but actually joy is its own form of resistance. 
when I talk about self-care, I also talk about that laughter and joy. I saw the one of the most wonderful things this morning, actually, in, in terms of talking about news coverage, that they did a general interest piece about a African-American woman who turned 100. Uh, and in celebrating her birthday, she's a member of the AKA sorority. Well, uh, well, okay, okay. All right, all right. And some of her sorors from all ages and all walks of life, because of COVID, could not actually have a 100th birthday party for her. But what they did is they congregated in the courtyard of her building with balloons, with their AKA apparel, and they sang happy birthday and she waved to them from her window, right? And it to me was just about black love and black joy because it took efforts to organize that. And she's a diamond AKA, which means that she's been a member for 75 years. Yeah. And she talked about how that was one of the best birthday celebrations that she's ever experienced. And I was moved by it. I was moved to tears by it because it was beautiful. And it allowed me to see how powerful Black love is when we really join in community to think about what we need for one another. And she has seen so much in those 100 years. And to say that, you know, this was one of the best birthdays, you know, really spoke to me about how much we want to continue to celebrate, continue to, to laugh, continue to build community in those ways, despite the challenges of the pandemic and despite the realities of, of the social justice struggle that we have currently. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I think it's, it is important to share our stories. It is important to share our stories. The, the Black story, the experience of the Black story in America isn't just a story of struggle, but there are stories of, of joy and laughter and connection. And what you just illustrated is a, is a really great example of that. Uh, the last question I want to ask you before I let you go. Uh, recently, a task force in Indianapolis uh, convened and said that racism is a health crisis that for their state, that, that racism is a health crisis. And I don't disagree with that. I think that the psychic toll of racism, you know, we talk about reparations, and I know that for a lot of people that means financial. I would love to see free or federally funded untethered access to mental health services for black people with respect to the psychic toll that racism has taken so in terms of resources things that people can kind of grab a hold to right now to either read or to listen to to kind of help them navigate their own mental health journey with respect to what's going on what are the things that you would recommend Sure. So I talk a great deal about mental health and the impact of wellness. So the New York Association of Black Psychologists and the National Association of Black Psychologists have a lot of great resources related to mental wellness. So we spend so much time thinking about and talking about illness. Uh, and I I think we need to really shift the focus also into wellness, so more prevention relative to our mental health care. So being able to, if you go to either their site, so the, the Association of Black Psychologists, abci.org, has resources related to both the pandemic and, and related to racism 
in this country and how to deal with racial trauma, how to deal with and cope with some of the challenges that are facing us. And so I tend to, and they have a lot of resources there that you can go and read. There are activities that you possibly can do to really allow you to benefit from increasing your focus on mental wellness, emotional wellness, so that you're able to know and understand that we're in a challenging environment, but that there are many signs that point to us being able to certainly not only endure, but to thrive. If we take this moment as a moment in time that allows us the opportunity to affect change while also preserving some of our well-being related to the pandemic and the social unrest. Thank you so much for that. And if people want to reach out to you, if they want you to be their therapist, how can people find you on social media and otherwise? So they can go to my website. So it's dynamic transitions, LLP as in Paul.com. So that's dynamic transitions, LLP.com. You have an opportunity there to set up a 15 minute free consultation with me to, to talk about what your needs are. I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Rich Orbe Austin. You can find me on all the different social media platforms as well. So whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, but going to the website, I'm very active on posting about racial trauma and racial issues on Instagram specifically. So at Dr. Rich Orbe Austin is another way to find me. And then right now, currently, I'll do a quick plug. One of the things that I talk about in terms of mental wellness to, to deal with, I actually have a book that came out called uh, Own Your Greatness that talks about overcoming imposter syndrome uh, and really being able to thrive. And imposter syndrome is when we aren't able to own our accomplishments and we beat ourselves up and don't allow ourselves to really find the opportunities and achievements that we deserve. And so that's another opportunity for you to engage and connect. And there'll be an associated course related to that as well. Thank you so much. And listeners, I'm going to put everything that Dr. Richard Orbe Austin just mentioned in the show notes and make sure that you guys go to Instagram and show him some love. Dr. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. Everything that you said, I mean, just dropping diamonds left and right. And it's at a time where it's so critically needed. I really do appreciate you. Thank you so much, Kyle. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, and I wish you the best of days.